Kim Stanley Robinson is one of the most respected of contemporary science fiction writers. Over 20 novels, beginning with his Californian trilogy from 1984, about a series of possible futures after environmental devastation. He might be best known for his Mars trilogy, but since then he's largely concentrated on Earth, Antarctica, a global warming trilogy, climate has become his central focus and he has become something of a celebrity in environmental parts. He's become a spokesperson for the environment. His most recent work is his first non-fiction book. It's about the Sierra Nevada mountains. He has loved them since he first went there 50 years ago. It's called The High Sierra, A Love Story. And it's an exhilarating and very personal memoir. Climate change figures in it too, of course. What will it do to the Sierra Nevada? And it's climate change that Kim Stanley Robinson's previous book is about. And it's caused a lot of buzz. The Ministry for the Future, it's called... A ministry which emerges from a 2025 Paris Agreement. The ministry is led by an Irish woman called Mary Murphy, whose aim is to engage the central banks to shift the economy away from fossil fuels. It's a big book. There's a lot going on. But it is ultimately hopeful. It is still possible, says Stan Robinson, to save ourselves. I said, well, I understand that perfection is the enemy of progress, but there are an awful lot of balls that need to go into an awful lot of holes at the same time. Are there not? Yes, that's true. Um, well, let me put it this way. There's never going to be a plan. It's not going to be a coordinated effort, uh, except in uh, partial ways that are important but not complete. So it's always going to look like a mess the next 20 or 30 years. And it often will look like we're failing, but the underlying uh, push to decarbonize and to um, pull a lot of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and re-sequester it, all these things are started. The technologies are there. The will is growing. Everybody's frightened. The, um, the climate signals from just this last year are uh, a bit shocking and imply that worse is to come. So uh, in, I mean, I've been doing nothing but talk about this since ministry came out in uh, three years ago this month. And what I'm seeing across government, business, academia, and really the general population is um, a sense that this is real and it's urgent and something has to be done. Uh, a lot of good promises have been made. A lot of hopeful signs are there, but it's going to be a mess. But And I want to end by this. Not all the balls have to go into all the pockets all at once. We just have to keep on pushing, even if it looks 
uh, semi-disastrous and the pushing will come to a better result than if we don't push. So that's as simple as it can be. We seem to be lurching to to one wake-up call not long since the last wake-up call and still we're not quite woken. I mean, the latest wake-up call, of course, occurred this week with a report that the ice in Antarctica is diminishing at a frightening rate. Yes. Yeah, it's shocking that it's heating up as fast as it is because it is quite the icebox and it's in the dark um, through the winter and one wouldn't think it could warm in an appreciable way in our lifetimes, but it has. So um, it's a sign. I'm actually doing stuff with glaciologists who are interested to see if they could maybe slow down the big Antarctic glaciers in their slides into the sea by pumping the water out from underneath them. It's a it's an operation that's possible, and so it's one of these um, mini geoengineering ice loss mitigation. It's a it's yet another project that people are actually um, researching, trying to get pilot projects, trying to get funding, etc. It might work. It's kind of interesting. It's interesting enough for you to put it in the Ministry for the Future as one of your technological fixes for climate change. You pump water yes. out from underneath the the glaciers so that they stop yes. sliding, and then you pump the water on top so that it freezes. Yes. This is something suggested by what I thought was one glaciologist, and indeed he's still a leader, but a whole team of them or a community of them has gathered to discuss every possible way that the ice can be slowed down. You know, and the main one, of course, is global decarbonization and, and um, working on the large issues. But in terms of the local issues that they're facing, um, I wrote it up because I've been to Antarctica. I like it there. I, I felt I understood the technology, which is important for me as an English major to be able to write about it. And it was interesting because sea level of, is, of course, important. And the sea level rise that could happen if the big glaciers slide into the sea is is quite shockingly high. It, it will wreck the coastal cities of the world in ways that will be hard to uh, recover from. So uh, coping with that is, I think, uh, an important problem that actually has some solutions, at least potentially, that need to be explored. Let's talk about the, the technological fixes for climate change. A lot of people are very averse to them. They say, look, they're just going to make everybody think that we can fix this and we don't need to amend our behaviour at all. You take a rather broader view of that, do you not? I do. I'm thinking that attitude comes from about 1990 and it has been superseded by the amount of CO2 that we poured into the atmosphere, we're in an emergency. It's clear to anybody really facing the issue that we have to decarbonize fast. So that's a given no matter what else we do. Then after that, if we can mitigate some of the damage we've already started by doing things, then those things ought not to be off the table just because of this so-called moral hazard from 1990 or from 1760, really. Uh, so I'd say we're in an all-hands-on-deck situation, and everything has to be considered. And now, geoengineering, the problem there is that one method has seized attention from all the rest, and this is sometimes called solar radiation management, 
um, imitate the Pinatubo volcanic eruption, throw a bunch of dust or sulfur dioxide in the atmosphere. This is what India does in, in the Ministry for the Future. This is what India tries to do. Yes, yes, that's right, because it's very often talked about and it's still being discussed. But that's the elephant in the room. That's the break glass in case of emergency. That's the most radical and possibly unpredictable of the geoengineering methods being discussed. And it's like if you're discussing tools and you say, yes, let's discuss um, a shovel, a saw, an axe, a hammer and an atomic bomb. Well, the attention goes to the atomic bomb. And the fact that there are very good tools like axe, hammer, um, saw that could be put to use in this that are smaller methods, local, reversible, um, modular, and distributed. These methods, like, say, brightening the clouds by shooting seawater up to the point where they become clouds and they're bright and they bounce some sunlight away or creating um, passive radiation, in other words, bright patches on the ground that shoot heat and light back up into space, um, or the taking the water out from underneath the big glaciers to slow them back down to their historic speeds. These are also geoengineering, you might say, if you want to, but that word has become toxic and uh, useless. And so I think we need to talk about these various interventions one at a time, uh, their virtues, their dangers, their possibilities, their costs, and and put the solar radiation management in a separate category of um, if millions of people are dying, which happens in my novel ministry in the very first scenes, then there might be a country like India saying, look, we're going to cool this planet down right now, and we don't care what you think. And that's the scenario that I ran, but it's not exactly what we uh, have to expect is going to happen. It's kind of a cautionary scenario. So your opinion is that the, the bumper sticker line, technology got us into this, it can't get us out, is insufficiently nuanced, to say the least. Well, it's very silly. I, these people, the moment they get sick, they'll run to a doctor. So in other words, a scientist with their technologies, and one will be hoping with all one's hope that that technology can perhaps give you even another year, much less save your life. So um, we are a technological species. Before we were humans, our predecessors were using fire and stone and language and manipulating the world in what we now call technological ways. It's always true. Some technologies succeed so well that we create subsequent problems. I would say um, uh, substantially helping with infant mortality. Suddenly we've got this giant population we never had before. It's an unexpected problem created by our successes of a technology. Same with uh, burning fossil fuels. It was great until we suddenly realized that the sewage from it goes up in the atmosphere and, and wrecks the biosphere, an indirect side effect. But the only solution is a technology that's more um, subtle, more effective, and it might create problems and then we'll have to solve those. What else is the story of history? Um, so people who, are, who make that claim there's a simplicity to it, um, a, a desire for things to be simple, and things simply are not simple. So um, people have to get over that. I'm talking to Kim Stanley Robinson about his novel, science fiction novel, The Ministry for the Future. Do you like science fiction or speculative? 
Oh, I like science fiction. That's what I do. All right. Um, yeah. You mentioned India, and one can understand why India wants to use any fix it can get because your book opens with one of the most horrific scenes I can ever remember reading. It's a wet mm. bulb event. Please explain. Yes, um, and this is what caused me to write the book. The scientific and medical communities kind of put their heads together, and this is in response to people who were saying humans can adapt to anything. If we cause global warming, which we are, then we will simply adapt. Why be so worried? But human bodies can't adapt to a combination of heat and humidity, which is measured sometimes by what they call wet bulb of which you keep the thermometer bulb wet, spin it around and see what temperature you get. And then the humidity impedes essentially the human's ability to sweat off their heat. And they, you are parboiled in your own body at wet bulb 35, which is a combination of heat and humidity. It's a bit variable, but say there's uh, 90 degrees Fahrenheit. You can, you can look all this up. I don't want to be too precise about it because I, I'll be wrong. But um, a high enough combination of heat and humidity, and people can't survive it without air conditioning. And yet that's precisely when the electrical grids are going to sometimes go out. So that's what I, when I read that, I thought this needs to be better known. Because this adaptationist crowd that's just saying, let's go ahead and burn fossil fuels because we're so damn adaptive. They're wrong. And it needs to be said. Is your plan for the future, and we'll get to that, we'll get to what the Ministry of the Future plans, is it compatible with capitalism? Because throughout your book, you have fairly rousing speeches about, you know, the greedy and the 1% or the 2%, or the fact that people are, you know, survivalists or trying to go off the planet in some way to inoculate themselves against the inevitable is your plan, your optimistic plan, compatible with capitalism? It's a good question. And I'm going to say that it would be a emergent post-capitalism that will succeed. But I don't want to be inventing new economic systems and in casting about for what can work. Uh, since we are in a capitalist world, and for sure my visits to New Zealand in the 1990s made it very clear to me at meetings in Christchurch that New Zealand was fully bought into the neoliberal capitalist order, but that doesn't make New Zealand at all unusual. Um, what can we do in this current system that shifts quickly? And there you have to go back to John Maynard Keynes, to Keynesianism, where Instead of saying the market can solve everything, which it obviously cannot, you have to remember that government guides the economy with its laws, and different laws makes different kinds of political economy. And Keynesianism would simply say that sometimes in an emergency, the government has to direct the economy and say, we're spending money on this. So in the modern world, this would be quantitative easing, like in 2008 or in 2020, where the central banks make up a lot of new money from scratch and, and, and uh, pour it into the economy to keep it viable. If it's poured into green projects at the start by central banks, then you have carbon quantitative easing. There are many other plans. You can legislate it, like the Biden's um, um, 
uh, Inflation Reduction Act, which was a climate bill of the last year or the year before. There are many ways to fund it, but you can't make the market do the job. And the whole neoliberal era proves that 1980 to 2020 or so when it all crashed and we're in the we're in the post neoliberal era without having a new one yet. But what you can do is just simply say government needs to um, direct the economy because nobody wants a gigatons of frozen dry ice of carbon dioxide. This is not something anybody's going to buy. It's more like sewage where the governments have to tax their citizens, gather funds, make up new funds from scratch, and pay for the necessary public utilities and drawing down carbon dioxide, decarbonizing the whole economy, electrifying everything. This is all necessary to keep the biosphere from crashing. So as Kane said, anything that we have to do, we can afford to do. However, so, uh, a, a, yeah. government, a yeah. government is one thing, right? In the Ministry for the Future, we have every government in the world buying into a new currency, create carbon coin, to pay for decarbonisation. Fiat money yeah. issued by the national central banks. This is Mary Murphy's plan, to get those central yeah. banks together and to create an international carbon coin. Uh -huh. Yes. This calls for a level of cooperation that I suggest the world has never seen. Well, we could call it the Paris Agreement, or we could call it the Network for Greening the Financial System, which is an organization of central banks, about 90 of them, all the biggest ones, who get together to try to green the financial system in their discussions. I want to suggest that my in my novel, The Carbon Coin, is a little simplistic and might stand as a symbol for any number of financial mechanisms that um, governments are going to have to invent and deploy. So the network for greening the financial system, you can go to their website, you can find their white paper. They have nine ways they suggest that governments can green money from the start, fiat money. And so are those nine methods? I only understand seven of them, to tell you the <laughs> truth. But um, do those um, do those represent? Uh, would the carbon coin be a tenth method, or do those nine methods are be are are a financially articulate and savvy description of what how the carbon coin would deploy? I don't have the expertise to unpack that one, but I was very encouraged. You know, this organization predated Ministry for the Future. I didn't know it existed, and so I was acting as if Mary Murphy had to push. But in fact, the push is already happening, and this is really encouraging. Um, I, I've learned things since my book came out that make me think that the book is a little darker than it really had to be, that uh -huh. 2019 was a darker time than now in certain important ways. All right. The issue that we face according to the book and the Mary Murphy is that a vast quantity of very valuable fossil fuels need to be kept in the ground. Yes. and. The way to do this is you have to compensate the people who would ordinarily make a lot of money out of this. This is not only private fossil fuel companies, it's petro-states. So yes. it would involve 
throwing money at already very rich countries. That seems counterintuitive. Well, yes. And in fact, you've put your finger right on um, one of the outstanding problems that in this, in the flurry of other problems is seldom noted by readers of Ministry for the Future because it's only a couple pages devoted to this problem. But I've been talking about it since. And no one wants to hear it because of what you just said. Um, these countries have been often kleptocracies where the leadership at the top has stolen all of the fossil fuel funding that they get. And 80% of the fossil fuels on this planet, or maybe 75, but it, it might be 80, is in the hands of governments, not of private companies like Exxon. So uh, you could nationalize uh, uh, companies like Exxon, and you'd still have the problem of the petro-states. Um, and some of them you could call rich, but it's really just the 1% at the top who have stolen all that money. Other countries are quite poor. Uh, Nigeria, Venezuela, South Africa, the poverty in these places is shocking. So it's having um, fossil fuels in your country and owning it is often regarded as a kind of a curse in that it uh, torques governments until you've got bad governments that are stealing this money and the people go wanting. So the compensation, say that the OECD or the Network for Greening the Financial System ultimately would come down to the US, China, and European Union as the big three, um, say to the, these petro states, we will compensate you for keeping it in the ground. Colombia, in fact, asked for that. When the leftist government was elected a couple of years ago, they said, we don't want to sell any more coal. They're the fifth biggest coal producer on earth. We don't want to sell our coal anymore, but we need help with that. They did not get help with that. It's a, it's an, a problem that if you rate it financially goes into the trillions and trillions of dollars. On the other hand, here's what you could do. You go to these nations and say, look, we'll help you. We don't want you to be a failed state. That doesn't, that's not good for anybody. Um, but you have to sign on to good governance. You have to um, accept a haircut. You're going to get a discount. You're not going to get the full value of this. It's going to be amortized over time, like over a century, so that you'll be guaranteed a, this discounted payment for your fossil fuels. You keep it in the ground, and then you promise to the money we pay you gets um, sent to your people and to green progress the clean transition work. And that, of course, is an attack on their sovereignty. It will look like a, a neo-financial uh, colonialism or imperialism of the rich countries against the poor. Deals will have to be made. Understandings will have to be created that this is simply a way of avoiding catastrophe that involves, a, you could really, if you wanted to, just call it investment in countries that need it, but they will have signed on a dotted line that reduces their sovereignty as a nation state that can do whatever it wants within, within its borders. But that's true everywhere. Going from nation state to member state is a gigantic psychological and legal and financial change, but we have the European Union, we have the Paris Agreement, we're all in the UN. Um, being a member state where your sovereignty is somewhat reduced is not uncommon and we need more of it. But you have, in fact, put your finger on, I think, the, the biggest problem that nobody wants to talk about right now, which is um, the petrostates are doomed without our help. And if they're doomed, they're going to drag us all down with them. 
I'm talking to science fiction writer, environmentalist, Kim Stanley Robinson. You've um, worked out how many gigatons of CO2 need to be left in the ground. Can you yes. just... Well, I, haven't, I can quote it. I yes. didn't work it out myself. In fact, I got corrected by Bloomberg. I was using a figure and their fact checkers fact checked me. Um, so give me the fact-checked me... version. Yes, we can burn about 500 more gigatons into the atmosphere, and we're burning about 40 per year, so you can do the math, before we really tip over into a very, very hot climate, higher than uh, 2 degrees above the previous norm, or maybe even 1.5. So, okay, we've got a, a 500 gigatons left to burn with it, without torching ourselves. There have been identified, this is now fact-checked, 3,500 gigatons of fossil fuels in the ground, and 75% of it claimed by countries who already have it on their books as assets. And they've borrowed on those assets, like everybody does. So um, we have something like 3,000 gigatons, and that's a billion tons of fossil fuels that need to stay in the ground so that we don't torch the planet. And if you run the value of that, and the, here I was not fact-checked, and it's completely arbitrary. You pick a number for those uh, gigatons of fossil fuels, and I picked the price of oil at the time. And I got um, $1,600 trillion, like $1.6 quadrillion U.S. dollars. Well, this is completely arbitrary. Well, not, not completely arbitrary, but it, it's, a, it's picked out of the blue. To, to illustrate how much money we have called assets that are now poison that we have to keep in the ground. It's a lot. You would have to discount it, obviously, because since it's poison, you don't want to have to pay people that much for it. But this is the problem in its full, um, I wouldn't say it's full array, because no. A, I'm an English major and a novelist, <laughs> and B, the, the experts are not exactly drilling down on this one. <laughs> to coin a phrase. Um, the trouble is, is it not, <laughs> that not everybody who wants to use fossil fuels in their country is a kleptocrat or a villain. Some of them are Democrats. Some of them want to enable their people to live better lives and yes. get them out of poverty. There's always yes. a good reason, right? There's often a good reason, for sure, yes. And, 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 um, this is part of the equation. We need justice. We need every living human at adequacy as a primal consideration, as one of the goals of our civilization globally. And that has to be combined with this other stuff. So you can't have, uh, climate fascism or some police state that oppresses everybody in order to save the biosphere. That's a fantasy combination anyway. Some people claim to be afraid of it, the eco-fascists, but in fact, it's going to have to be democratic and it's going to have to be involved with justice. One thing's for sure, this rapid decarbonization project is a full employment program for everybody on Earth. We need that many humans working on it. The whole idea that humans are redundant is ridiculous once you get into the physical world. And indeed, we don't have anywhere near as many electricians and experts in that kind of work as we're going to need going forward. So it combines with the um, sustainable development goals of the UN. It's certainly being talked about together now. 
at the level of the Paris Agreement, um, these international bodies are, they're much more attuned to the problem than I thought they would be, as I'm finding in this last couple years, I think, because they're scared that, that we are really facing a quite um, dangerous uh, situation in the next couple of decades. And the people who are experts who have spent their lives getting the education and training to evaluate these situations, they're looking to these new evaluations like the planetary boundaries, that we've broken through planetary boundaries, that we're not in a safe operating space for planet Earth. These are new ways of putting it. They're powerful and people are scared enough that they're thinking, we really can't do business as usual and scrape by here. We're going to have to I'll use a neoliberal word. We're going to have to innovate our way into a new dispensation. And hopefully that new dispensation will dispense with words like innovate and we'll go back to invent and discover and help um, rather than these words that indicate, well, we'll make something up that we can then make a profit from and extract value from everybody else. I don't like that vocabulary, but this is just English major complaining, really. Are you confident or simply hopeful and hope is never simple but let it be that we are not in Al Gore's immortal phrase going from denial to despair in one big step um it's a good question it depends on what news has smacked me in the nose that day yeah exactly and one of the things what I, things I wanted to do with ministry was to suggest that it's going to look like a mess and even a disaster, even if we are succeeding yeah. under the froth of the daily news. So we have to be prepared for that. And I talk about angry optimism. I talk about hope as a club to beat your opponents with in the political battlefields, I mean. In other words, since we can make a better world, we really ought to for the sake of our children and the generations to come and the wild animals, etc. It's a, um, a kind of an obligation if you uh, care to take it on in those terms. And it's practical, too, uh, in that you don't want to be fighting off zombies, which is a symbolic way of talking about the breakdown of a social order that's quite comfortable for most of us in the middle-class countries, that a, a certain amount of um, anger can direct hope in the right directions to keep on working, even when the situation will include lots of terrible news. Your book describes uh, quite a lot of violence to property and to people. Uh, drones are used a lot, and in one Almost aside, you mentioned that drones are used to bring down aeroplanes, causing the death of thousands of people. Uh, there are alternatives, there are dirigibles and planes that fly on biofuels, but these drones target planes that are using fossil fuels. Is that, ah, is that justifiable? No. No, um, I wouldn't want to say that that's justifiable, and I hope it's not. I hope it doesn't happen. When I wrote the novel, I was in a darker space, as I explained, and I thought nobody's paying attention. And there are going to be people angry. They're going to see their family die, their whole village die. They're going to come out of out of that, not just wanting justice, but wanting revenge. And it's pretty easy to um, commit terrorist acts 
as we as we all know. So I was worried, and I wanted the portrait of the future to be realistic feelings. So I wanted people reading it to think, ah, yes, um, bad things could happen. If we neglect the problem now, it's a kind of a cautionary tale or a warning shot. Because I don't think violence against people ever works ultimately. The backlash is too severe. And you mentioned violence against property and against people. There is a huge difference that uh, Swedish philosopher Andreas Malm, who wrote How to Blow Up a Pipeline, a very good little book, um, violence against property might be something that um, people would consider in their armory of defenses in defense of the earth as a kind of civil disobedience shifted over even to breaking property. And this person and many others have said, that's not violence. That's just breaking things. Violence is against other humans and hopefully would always be off the table. So for sure, ministry has uh, not gotten me in trouble, but caused some very hard questionings about is the book saying violence is necessary or that violence works? And to a certain extent, you don't know, the novel doesn't tell you what Badim, the the head of the black wing of the Ministry for the Future, we don't know what he authorized and what he didn't. And, and it was interesting that Obama liked this novel because he authorized some extrajudicial murders, um, thinking it was for the higher good. I would not want to be in that position. That he liked a book must mean that he thought Badim was a a realistic portrait of somebody caught in that dilemma of cost benefit when you're talking about human lives. Mm. It's an ugly it's an ugly topic. It's yeah, and I mean I'm not I'm not charging you with inciting violence in any way, but the fact is that Frank, who manages God knows how to survive that wet bulb event in India that opens the book, yeah. he ends up killing someone. And the circumstances are such, and Frank's situation is such, and these individuals are such that you think, well, I would probably have done the same. Well, yes, thank you for that. Uh, Frank's story, I wanted people to, in the normal way of a novel, to invest their imagination into it and imagine that they uh, have lived that life also. This is the great glory of reading novels. You live 10,000 lives. Frank's is a hard one and uh, a sad one. Yeah, really sad. So, yeah. And, and, but that, that happens. We all know that happens. And post-traumatic stress disorder is a very common, like almost universal human problem. Certainly we're all post-traumatic. Whether we suffer from the stress disorder is a individual matter. Uh, Frank certainly does because of the horror of what he saw. Um, but we're all going to be in that point and that, that weird situation of witnessing things that are dreadful and wishing we could do more about it as, as he does. So I think it's a pretty common story. Or I guess you could say what the novel does is it, it, it sends you or you help co-create individuals and they're typical. So they're a type. They're individuals that stand for a whole uh, group of us or even all of us. And so I did that on purpose, but it was a sad story to tell. Um, massive geopolitics at work here, but at the same time throughout the book, you talk about grassroots movements that have been going for a long time now, real grassroots movements in 
a way that makes me think that you're worried that they might give up in the face of a despair or b somebody else is doing something so we don't matter so much anymore. Well, that's interesting. I certainly worried that Ministry for the Future is a novel about international bureaucrats with very top-down solutions. And I wanted to suggest, since a novel can't be the whole world, in even long novels like mine, and even a grab bag, a miscellany like Ministry, can't be everything. But I had this one chapter that I, I simply went to, onto Google and I found a map where somebody had pinned up every single environmental group on earth that had a video about themselves on YouTube. You can find it still. And I simply listed those organizations. Uh, and a lot of people report to me that that chapter, I know because of them, that it's chapter 85 is the most moving chapter for them. And I can see that you want to be able to contribute yourself as an ordinary citizen. And in fact, you can. Every town on earth has an environmental group now. Uh, in my town, it's called Cool Davis. I'm also working to bring a preschool back into my little village. And tangible efforts that you can put in on your own and work with other people in, who are neighbors and um, acquaintances or friends, these kind of efforts take the... Um, the horrible loss of agency, the sense that, okay, the world, the weather's changing, nothing I can do. But there are things that you can do. And there is a bottom-up effort that's quite vigorous. In fact, it's uh, growing every day. And so I, even though I only just devoted one brief chapter to that uh, side of things, because the novel was really about this international agency, uh, well, it's at least that's the focal point. Um, nevertheless, I'm glad I have it in there. It's suggestive, and we, we do have things we can do at every level. I think there's a few Kiwi organizations in that long list. And actually, in the audio book, they had the readers, because it's one person at a time announcing their organization, they have some kind of cavalcade of accents in English, um, and it's a pretty fun chapter to listen to. It takes 10 or 15 minutes. And some people regard it as the most boring chapter ever <laughs> written. It's a list of uh, organizations. Other people quite enjoy it. But that's the thing. I mean, the chapters are so short. You've got about 105, yes. six of them. That, you yes. know, if you're bored, move on. And yep. to be fair, <laughs> I wasn't bored very often. I, well, I, I, there are some uh, chapters that are meeting notes. There are some chapters that are definitions of terms. What's Jeevan's paradox? What's ideology? Yes. I mean, it is, it's a crazy uh, book. I did that on purpose. I'm pleased with the result. The novel is very capacious as a form. It is a capacious. And I love it's a baggy monster, as people had said. Yes, it is a baggy monster. And I want to say some of my novels are much more conventional and, and have better plots, etc. But they have all been put Far in the shade by um, the response the to this, I know. Yeah, tell yeah. me, was there ever a time when you thought we will be able to colonize other planets and save ourselves? Well, I never thought it was a way of saving ourselves, but for sure in the 90s, the word I was getting from the scientists was that we could, in fact, inhabit Mars and even terraform it. And I pushed the schedule a bit for novelistic terms, but it was all within the realm of a kind of realism. 
what we've learned since about Mars is that the surface is fantastically poisonous to humans. Did not know that when I wrote the Mars Trilogy. And now in Climate Change on Earth, it was never going to save us. Even in the Mars Trilogy, there are characters constantly saying to people on Earth and to the reader, Mars is a small hand mirror of things happening on Earth. Everything that we have here in the way of problems and opportunities um, exists also on Earth, except by a uh, exaggerated by a magnitude of it, say a trillion. Um, so uh, it was a metaphor, uh, not a plan. And it was a novel, most of all. And I will stand by it as a novel. And I hope 20,000 years from now, you know, we'll be lightly terraforming Mars and dealing with the perchlorates in the soil by by watering them, uh, which uh, depoisons them. Um, but it's a silly thing to talk about now because we are in a climate emergency on Earth and there is no planet B. And the people who say that are dead right. The moon and Mars are useless to us. And since you all are in New Zealand, I can say space is very much like Antarctica. So, Scott Base, it's fantastic. Classes go down there. People spend their time down there. They come back. Um, they come back to the world, they call it. It's like a, another planet that you can fly to or sail to because it's so icy and indeed you would die in an hour if you didn't take precautions from the cold. So um, spaces like Antarctica, interesting, but fundamentally not that useful. I just want to talk for a moment about the High Sierra, your big book, A Love Story, the High Sierra you've been walking in for as I said, about half a century now. Has yeah. that, your love for that wild place, has that made you feel better about the crisis we're in or worse because you know how much we have to lose? It's been a bit of both. And uh, thank you for that. It's um, I went up there at the end of the drought here, we had here in California and the um, I, I went into a high basin where there had been seven glaciers and there was only one left. They were others. The others were gone. It was rock. This was shocking. I never thought I'd see that. And then all the plants were dead. There were rivers that sometimes we had to swim across that were simply black trenches in the ground. It was pretty apocalyptic and heartbreaking. But friends, first of all, we had a massive winter and snow and everything's refilled and gloriously green. But also a friend said to me, the Sierra Nevada and California in general have been through mega droughts before. And these high mountains are like a sky island. Um, and they have survived. Whatever's up there that's still alive has survived in evolutionary terms through tremendous droughts. And so it's not likely to just turn into a blasted, I don't know, something like Nevada or the Transantarctics. It's not likely to turn into rock. It's going to uh, suffer like we all are, but we can bring it all back. And so it's like the canary in the coal mine. And I'm, I want to say that when I was flying to Antarctica, I spent two or three weeks in Christchurch waiting for flights because of storms and then renting a car every day and driving as far as I could from Christchurch and getting back to Christchurch in that same day in case the flight left the next morning. I saw a lot. It's incredibly beautiful. And it reminds me in California in some ways, but of course, every place is different. But I went and looked at Mount Cook. I, I jumped into a glacial lake and got out really fast, having frozen myself, etc. It's gorgeous and it's reminiscent. I think there's something similar. 
But, you know, New Zealand has, uh, what, three or four million people, and California has, like, 40 million people. So there's something strangely stressful and um, anxiety-provoking being a Californian right now because it's we're in such a, um, a strange historical situation, not at all the same as New Zealand, because every country has their own... Um, particular historical situation and geographical but i and i don't know anything at all about north island but south island i've driven around not all of it it's very big way bigger than i thought but i've seen enough to to know how um, intensely beautiful it is in ways that i recognize from the sierra nevada so when you've got country like that you're you feel for it and that was ken stanley robinson whose book's called The Ministry for the Future, 